enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. spectroscopy in a lot of previous podcasts. In episode two, I talked about how Vesto Slifer's work measuring the spectra of various nebulae contributed to Edwin Hubble's discovery that there was a direct relation between a star, nebula, or galaxy's redshift and its distance from Earth, which all proved that the universe was expanding. I mentioned the spectroscopic capabilities of the Hubble telescope in episode three, and how these pictures can help scientists see gases at the center of cloudy galaxies, In episode 5, I described how Henry and Anna Draper took photos of individual stars using a prism on the end of their telescopes so that they could catalog each star's spectral lines. I highlighted Wilhelmina Fleming, Antonia Mari, and Annie Jump Cannon's contributions to the classification of these stellar spectra in episode 6, and I'll summarize their work a little later in this podcast because it's still relevant to spectroscopy today. All of this history sets up today's podcast to be kind of intimidating. From my position, I have to do justice to this thing I've mentioned a lot and promise to come back to repeatedly. For you, maybe spectroscopy sounds like it's going to be confusing. Well, it's my job to deconfusing it, so let's find out if I can do my job. (laughs) So at its heart, spectroscopy is studying elements. A spectroscope originally consisted of a prism, maybe a series of lenses, and a slit that you would shine light through. The light would come through in a narrow beam. The lenses would direct the light, if there were lenses, and the light would go into the prism, and the prism would refract the light into a spectrum, that red-to-violet rainbow we all know and love. When you study that spectrum of light, you can learn about the properties of the light you're using on a chemical level. Specifically, folks used either sunlight or scientists burned up samples of different elements and looked at what their spectrums looked like. The first experiments with examining spectral lines began in the 1800s, but Joseph Fraunhofer is who I would call the source for popularizing the systematic exploration of spectroscopy and spectra. He ran the production side of an optical instrument firm starting in 1809, and he was kind of obsessive about his work, which is a good thing. Obsessiveness progresses things. (laughs) At the time his optical firm was operating, lenses were designed and carved the way you'd carve a beautiful sculpture. Opticians used intuition and bullshit to make these glass lenses that were being used for telescopes and eyeglasses and surveying instruments and microscopes. It was a bad process, because you don't want scientific instruments made with art and dreams. You want the same lens in every item you sell to people, so there's some semblance of consistency within the scientific community. Only one in five lenses carved by opticians were usable. And with the developments that were happening in astronomy and the other sciences, there was a growing demand for bigger and more finely crafted lenses. Fraunhofer wanted to fix the problem of inconsistent lenses. To do this, he needed to determine the optical parameters, refractivity, and dispersive power of glass over a range of wavelengths. 
He was looking for a source of monochromatic uniform light when he found that when he shone the light of a sodium lamp through a thin slit that then shone through a prism, lines were produced with this light, and he was able to measure the deviation of these lines. Fifty years earlier, Thomas Melville had seen the dark lines in the spectrum of light when he used a candle, and he sprinkled a flame with different substances to observe what their spectra looked like, but Fraunhofer didn't know about that. Instead of pursuing different elements in flames, Fraunhofer applied this spectroscopic device to sunlight, and he found that the rainbow spectrum that the prism produced had dark lines in it. The chemist and physicist William Hyde Wollaston had also observed these lines in the solar spectrum, but Fraunhofer didn't know about Wollaston's experiments. Fraunhofer tallied the positions of 574 of these dark breaks in the spectrum, labeling them alphabetically from red to violet. We still use his catalog today, and the dark lines in stellar spectra are called Fraunhofer lines. According to the book Starlight Detectives by Alan Hirschfeld, Fraunhofer did assert that these lines, quote, originate in the sun itself and are neither optical artifacts of the spectroscope nor the results of selective absorption of sunlight within Earth's atmosphere. So Fraunhofer published one paper on his findings about how he investigated the sun and how he attached his spectroscope to a telescope and saw that lunar and planetary spectra were the same as the sun's, which suggested they shine with reflected sunlight. And he looked at other bright stars as well, which had diverse spectra. He published that paper in 1817 in Munich's Royal Academy of Sciences journal, but that was his one and only publication on the subject. He had lenses to make. His lenses rocked, too. He refused to let anyone else study his techniques, and English opticians were super jealous. <laughs> Maybe they shouldn't have been so jealous, though. Fraunhofer died pretty young, at age 39, because working with glass and chemicals often led to heavy metal poisoning. Once Fraunhofer kicked off the movement in spectroscopy, laboratories in England and France started investigating the spectra of various incinerated and electrocuted substances, basically anything that would burn an element up. William Talbot did a bunch of experiments burning elements in a flame and viewing their spectra, and he noticed that there was a double yellow line that was the spectrum of sodium present in every one of the elements he burned. This turned out to be a problem with lab equipment and the fact that salt the most common form of sodium, is omnipresent. It's in the water, it's in the air, it's everywhere, and even a small amount can contaminate samples. Talbot had hope that spectroscopy would progress to the point where you could burn an unknown substance and identify the chemicals that were in it by the resulting spectra. Chemical spectroscopy took a while to progress, though, as spectroscope users got derailed between 1820 and 1860 by finding a way to produce monochromatic light and by arguing about whether light was a particle or a wave. Spoilers, it's a particle that acts like a wave. The chemist Robert Wilhelm Bunsen, who invented the Bunsen burner, and his partner in science, physicist Gustav Kirchhoff, did the most comprehensive, intense, and exhaustive job in figuring out how to apply spectroscopy to both chemistry and astronomy. Together, they discovered two new elements using Kirchhoff's special spectroscope and Bunsen's awesome laboratory techniques, an excellent new method for burning elements without a risk of contaminating them with other materials. These new elements that they found were cesium and rubidium. Other chemists looked into spectroscopy as a means of finding new elements, and by the end of the 1860s, three more new elements had been discovered. 
Kirchhoff undertook an experiment wherein he placed a salt flame in the path of a beam of sunlight that he was shining through his spectroscope. When the flame wasn't lit by the sun, the two yellow sodium lines everyone knew and loved appeared in the spectroscope. When the sunlight shone through the salt flame, though, the bright yellow sodium lines transformed into dark lines. The sun's dark Fraunhofer lines in the area of the spectrum associated with sodium also got darker when the salt flame was in place. Kirchhoff had expected the salt flame's presence to fill in these lines, but instead they, quote, reinforced the absorption of these wavelengths of light. In contrast, putting a burning lithium flame between the sun's light and the spectroscope created a dark lithium line in the sun's spectrum where there had not been a dark line before. Try to picture this. When you set an element on fire, some elements will make the flame change color. Some won't. Either way, if you shine the light of that burning element through a prism and project that image onto a sheet of paper, you will see some bright lines. A very clear and very, very present example is, of course, the element sodium. When it's burned and when you view the light of its burning through a spectroscope, you will see just two thin yellow lines very close to each other in an otherwise dark band. These two bright yellow lines are how you can identify sodium spectroscopically. However, as George Johnson says in the book Miss Levitt's Stars, quote, if you shine a light through a gaseous substance like hydrogen or helium, certain colors will be filtered out. The result in this case is a characteristic pattern of black absorption lines interrupting the spectrum, another unique chemical fingerprint. The same colors marked by the absorption lines would appear as bright emission lines if the element was burned. So, the lines that appear when you burn an element up are the lines that will be dark if you shine a light through a gas made up of that element. The bright lines that appear when you burn an element up are emission lines, and the dark lines that appear when a gaseous or burned-up element has light shown through it are absorption lines. After further testing, Kirchhoff announced in 1859 that, quote, the dark lines of the solar spectrum exist in the consequence of the presence in the incandescent atmosphere of the sun of those substances which, in the spectrum of a flame, produce bright lines in the same plane. This was cool because it was a tangible example of the sun having an incandescent atmosphere. And Kirchhoff went on to assert that, in addition to a gaseous atmosphere, which was the source for these burned-up elements visible from Earth, the sun's hot atmosphere surrounded a hotter, solid nucleus. Throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, many prominent astronomers had believed the sun was a habitable place. William Herschel had believed the sun had a hot, opaque atmosphere with a temperate and likely inhabited world beneath the clouds, and that sunspots were breaks in this dense solar atmosphere. He wasn't the only one to believe this. Francois Arago and David Brewster sided with him as well. Kirchhoff had just presented proof that there was no way life could survive in a place as hot as the sun, if it was burning up enough to render elements for spectroscopic analysis. Kirchhoff also stated that, quote, a body with a propensity to emit light at a given wavelength must have an equal propensity to absorb light at that wavelength. Now, the scientific community didn't know what atoms were made of until electrons were discovered in 1887, and the atom's nucleus was discovered around 1909. Even the existence of atoms was still kind of a controversial discussion in the early 1800s, though atoms had been proposed as the makeup of all matter during the time of the ancient Greek philosophers. 
What all this absent atomic knowledge meant was that chemists were discovering new elements based on their spectral lines, and astronomers were working to determine what spectral lines from the sun corresponded to elements on Earth, but none of these scientists had an idea of how they were actually getting this information. Kirchhoff was presenting a functional model of a phenomenon that, at the time he was presenting his information, had an unknown cause. When you know atoms exist, as Johnson explains, then the existence of spectral lines makes a bit more sense. Johnson explains that, quote, When an atom is energized, its electrons jump into higher orbits. When they fall back down, they emit various frequencies of light. Every kind of atom is built a little differently, its electrons arrayed in a specific way, resulting in a characteristic pattern. So, spectroscopy, when it's referring to a spectroscope's use in extraterrestrial objects, is the study of an incandescent, or burning, celestial object's spectrum, when the light coming from that star, or nebula, is shown through a prism. Astronomical spectroscopy can be divided into solar spectroscopy, which was the study of the sun's spectrum, and stellar spectroscopy, when astronomers turned their spectroscopes to the stars and nebulae beyond our solar system. The astronomical community started with the solar spectrum, since it was right there, and very bright and accessible for observation. Kirchhoff himself began mapping the solar spectrum onto an eight-foot sheet of paper using diluted India ink to render the fainter and fainter lines. Kirchhoff handed off the project to an assistant due to his eye strain, and it was completed and published in installments between 1861 and 1862. It set the bar for all later solar spectrum maps, but there were issues with it. Kirchhoff's line positions were based on a scale that had an arbitrary zero point, and the adjustments he made to bring more lines into view and compare them with each other led to discontinuities in the scale. The line dispersion was also unique to Kirchhoff's spectroscope, so his numerical scale was best for line identification, rather than using his map as a comparison against other solar spectral maps. Anders Angstrom released a wavelength-based solar spectrum map in 1868 that used some different techniques and was both larger and somewhat easier to use than Kirchhoff's. Instead of having a prism in his spectroscope, Angstrom used a diffraction grating, which has thousands of little uniform parallel lines on a glass surface that reflects light like a mirror instead of refracting it like a prism does. An example of diffraction grating that you might be familiar with is the rainbow, slick, shiny side of a CD. Diffraction grating disperses colors uniformly by wavelength, and Fraunhofer had actually come up with a formula that, quote, expresses the wavelength of a spectral line depending on its derivation angle and the density of grooves in the grating. This meant that there were no issues with an arbitrary zero point in Angstrom's spectral scale, and you could determine the dis distances between lines without having to make adjustments to the spectroscope. Angstrom's spectroscope had greater power to disperse the solar spectral lines, too, so he found more spectral lines and different ones from Kirchhoff's, and an argument sprang up about what elements the sun actually contained. Probably because of how many little spectral lines he found, Angstrom ended up having a very infinitesimal measurement of distance named after him. The Angstrom is used to express wavelengths of light, since it's about 100 millionth of a centimeter. Lewis M. Rutherford started taking wet collodion plate photographs of solar spectra in 1864, and he came out with a 10-foot-long, quote, mosaic of the solar spectrum assembled from prints of 28 negatives, end quote, in 1878. 
Angstrom said that it would have saved him a year of ice train if Rutherford had come out with his map ten years earlier. Unfortunately, Rutherford's scale was haphazard, but he did use a specially made diffraction grating in his telescope, and he ended up giving one of only 50 of these precision diffraction gratings that he made to Henry Draper, who would use it, or something similar, to photograph the spectra of individual stars. The physicist Henry Rowland's concave reflection grating in the 1880s brought solar spectrum mapping to a modern standard of accuracy. By curving the previously flat diffraction grating, Rowland's concave reflection grating eliminated the need for focusing lenses, which meant that telescopes outfitted with this concave reflection grating generated spectra that were sharper, brighter, and higher resolution than anything used previously. Emitting the various extra lenses needed to focus light on flat diffraction gratings also allowed spectroscopic imaging to include the ultraviolet spectrum, which had previously been absorbed by all of the glass in the telescopes. Furthermore, the newly developed dry plate collodion photography techniques allowed astronomers to take photographs in a matter of minutes as opposed to leaving the telescopes out there for uh, up to a couple hours. The map Rowland produced with his spectroscope, which was 40 feet long, (laughs) served as a standard reference well into the 20th century. Folks still didn't know why spectral lines existed, and there were still questions about the behavior and differences of separate elements, But science was getting closer to understanding the makeup of the sun. They definitely knew it wasn't habitable. Spectroscopy also opened up an understanding of what stars and nebulae were made of, too. During the 19th century, a lot of people turned spectroscopes to the stars. Giovanni Donati, Father Pietro Angelo Secchi, Louis Rutherford, George Airy, and William Huggins. With his collaborator William Allen Miller, Huggins set out to try and beat everyone else in the scientific and astronomical community when it came to publishing about stellar spectra. Huggins and Miller put out a paper on the spectra of a few bright stars, including Betelgeuse and Aldebaran, in 1864. Their stellar spectrum maps included Fraunhofer labels of the spectral lines, as well as small notes on which lines corresponded to which elements on the periodic table. Even though it was a very small sample size, this was the first, quote, visual confirmation of the chemical unity of the sun and stars. Alone, Huggins observed the spectra of nebulae, which was even harder to do because they were very faint objects. He saw that many of their spectra differed from that of the sun and stars, and were mostly in the green-blue area of the spectrum. This signified that nebulae should be divided into several different categories, that they weren't one unified class of objects. Back in 1842, the mathematician Christian Doppler had claimed that, quote, the perceived frequency of a wave is altered by one state of motion. Waves from a steadily approaching source are compressed and their wavelength is shortened. Waves from a steadily receding source are stretched and their wavelengths elongated. We're getting into redshift and blueshift distance relations here, but Doppler wasn't an astronomer, and his attempt to connect this Doppler effect to the spectra of stars wasn't a great attempt. (laughs) He basically tried to say that the colors of stars were a result of them moving towards or away from Earth, and that's not true. It's an interesting theory, though. Another physicist, Armand Hippolyte Louis Faisot, and that's a hell of a name, (laughs) Faisot focused on the spectroscopic ramifications of Doppler's frequency changes. He suggested that measuring the shift of a spectral line from its laboratory standard wavelength would allow you to compute a star's radial velocity in space. 
This is actually the technique used to calculate the radial velocity of objects outside our solar system, and it's what was used to determine redshift and blueshift distance relations, but I'll talk about that later. It's a little sad that it's still called the Doppler effect when it was Fizeau who came up with the idea first when it was applied to astronomy, but so it goes. At the time, though, neither Doppler nor Fizeau's theories made it very far because they just weren't cited. Neither man had influence in the astronomical sphere of science. It wasn't until James Clerk Maxwell challenged Huggins to investigate these weird spectroscopic changes in stars that astronomers heard about the Doppler effect and started to consider its ramifications in astronomy. Unfortunately, Huggins' investigations proved that it was impossible for the human eye to discern the shift of a spectral line. Photographs of stellar spectra would be a good solution to this problem, and astronomers were starting to use photography more and more. Even though it was easier on the eyes and on the hands to take photographs of stellar spectra, it was also a lot harder, because wet collodion plates being used at the time needed long exposure times and perfect weather. Still, Henry and Anna Draper had started taking wet collodion photographs of the spectra of bright stars, and Huggins, now assisted by his new wife and collaborator Margaret Lindsay Huggins, turned to photography as well. William and Margaret Huggins used dry collodion techniques, which did affect what spectra emerged. The collodion-treated plates weren't sensitive to the longer wavelengths of red light, so the spectra that emerged were only in the violet and ultraviolet range. Much to the Huggins's frustration, the Drapers published on stellar spectra before them. In a fun twist, William Huggins was the one who had put Henry Draper on to dry collodion plates and who had given him optical supplies, all because Henry Draper said he wasn't taking stellar spectra photographs anymore. <laughs> it was actually kind of funny how much time Hirschfeld spends in Starlight Detectives talking about William Huggins' obsession with being first to publish about this stuff, especially because Hirschfeld says that, quote, History has shown that credit for an evolving theory or field, such as stellar spectrum photography, often goes not to individuals who are first to publish, but to those who most convincingly establish the validity and worth of their results. Well put, I think, though it was probably a big rush to be the first to throw out a theory in an evolving field. The Huggins duo was extra pissed when Edward Charles Pickering became Harvard Observatory's director in 1876 and made it his project to catalog the brightness and spectral composition of every star in the sky that Harvard Observatory could take a photograph of. After her husband Henry's death in 1882, Anna Draper donated the dry collodion plate photographs the Drapers had taken of individual stars and their spectral lines to Harvard Observatory for Pickering to analyze and classify. She also donated a lot of money to the observatory so astronomers would continue her husband's work, and Pickering honored her request. All of this focus on stellar spectral analysis definitely felt like yet another person encroaching on their territory, so William and Margaret Huggins gave up and focused on the ultraviolet part of stellar spectra for the rest of their careers. Margaret Huggins was actually listed as co-author on William Huggins's papers, and she was awarded an honorary membership in the Royal Astronomical Society in 1903, which was pretty cool. At Harvard Observatory, Pickering assigned Wilhelmina Fleming to catalog the Draper's plates and the new photographic plates that Harvard Observatory was taking of the night sky. And if you want more detail about this process, I covered it in episodes 5 and 6. As a quick summary... Antonia Mari was put in charge of classifying the stars she'd been assigned to analyze as a computer and had discovered binary stars from the changes that occurred in their spectra. 
Additionally, Mari classified the Northern Hemisphere stellar spectra. When Annie Jump Cannon was brought into Harvard Observatory's computer pool, she was assigned to determine the spectra of southern stars, and she simplified the current stellar classification techniques in place. Her changes emphasized certain areas of a star's spectrum and placed these star classifications along a continuum according to these spectra. We still use a revised version of Cannon's system of classification and the order she gave to the stars, and I'll include a link to the different classifications on the website at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. It's also up on the website in episode 6. Our current star categories starts with the stars that have helium lines in their spectra, as these are some of the hottest stars. The stars' spectra then move towards hydrogen, and then into stars that have metallic lines in their spectra. Cooler stars have titanium oxide, and others are actually carbon-based when they've cooled off enough. The star classification system by stellar spectrum also helped create the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, which is a scatter plot that compares each star's brightness with its temperature, which you know depending on the star's color and spectrum. Spectroscopes also helped astronomers out with the redshift and blueshift distance relations I mentioned earlier. In 1868, William Huggins had measured the radial velocity of the star Sirius, and while he did a bad job with the calculations, the star is actually moving away from Earth at 30 miles per second. By the mid-1880s, despite all the work Huggins and other astronomers had done, no one had figured out how to determine radial velocity from spectral line shifts, though they knew that it was the only technique available to them at the time. Hermann Carl Vogel had done some work with spectral line shifts, though, and he had observed that the sun exhibited these Doppler shifts. The eastern edge of the sun was shifted towards shorter wavelengths, which meant that it was moving towards us, while the western edge was moving away or exhibiting redshift. This meant that the sun was rotating. Vogel calculated solar rotation velocity, and, with even more observations, he confirmed that, quote, the sun does not rotate as a solid body. Its rotation rate varies with solar latitude, fastest at the equator, progressively slower towards the poles. In 1887, Vogel took some specialized photographs of stellar spectra in order to determine radial velocity of the stars. He took photographs of a narrow part of stellar spectra, focusing around each star's Fraunhofer G-line. He measured the separation of these lines from a comparison spectrum of the solar spectrum under a microscope. Vogel found that, quote, the deviation of the star's G-line from its solar position revealed the star's Doppler shift and, via mathematical formula, its line-of-sight motion. Vogel published a paper in 1892 of the radial velocities of 51 stars, and his work inspired other spectroscopic programs to determine radial velocities of stars. William Wallace Campbell at Lick Observatory observed the skies in the northern and southern hemispheres, took over 15,000 plates of stellar spectra, and constructed a catalog containing radial velocities for 2,771 stars. With all this data... Campbell was able to determine that the sun was moving towards the constellation Hercules at a rate of about 12 miles per second. In Hirschfeld's words, quote, what Pickering had accomplished for stellar spectral classifications with the Henry Draper project, Campbell had accomplished for stellar radial velocities with the Lick catalog. Radial velocity measurements that people made using spectroscopy also led to the discovery of more double stars. 
If observers noticed that a star's spectrum changed in a regular periodic way, and there was an alternating red and then blue shift exhibited by the star, then it was probably two stars that were orbiting each other, one and then the other swinging towards or away from Earth as they circled. Spiral nebulae were observed in 1899, and what people found as they measured the radial velocity of nebulae was that they were moving away from Earth at a much faster rate than the stars. Some were even coming at Earth instead of moving away, though this wasn't common. By 1923, Vesto Melvin Slipher had measured 41 of these nebulae, which was quite a feat because they were very hard to photograph. Edwin Hubble used Slipher's data to show the linear relation between a star or nebula or galaxy's redshift and its distance from Earth. The redshift distance relationship means that our universe is expanding. So, spectroscopy proved to astronomers that the sun is too hot for life to survive on it, it rotates, and it has an atmosphere. It also proved that the sun and stars and some nebulae are made up of the same materials, though some nebulae are very different from stars. It proved that double stars can appear more frequently than previously thought, and it proved that the universe is expanding. Spectroscopy also contributed to our star classification system, it enabled astronomers to calculate radial velocity, it provided advancements in chemistry, and it helped support the theory that atoms existed. That's a lot to take in about spectroscopy, I think. I talked more about the history of it than I had planned to, mostly because I was stuck in Iceland with no Wi-Fi and just one astronomy book for most of the writing of this podcast. I did finish another really good science history book while I was on vacation, and if you're interested in that stuff, uh, I highly recommend The History of the Atomic Bomb by Richard Rhodes. It took me three years to finish this book because I pretty much only read it on long trips, so uh, I'm very proud of myself. (laughs) I had to annotate it to keep up with all the nuclear physics, though. (laughs) It was Bible-sized, and it was incredibly well-written. I highly recommend it. My brother is currently reading my copy. I wonder what he'll make of the notes I wrote. Seriously, though, I think spectroscopy is fascinating. I still remember the astronomy course that I took in college when uh, Professor James Evans uh, took us outside, and he handed us spectroscopes. They were like... Okay. So the X-Men character Cyclops has those big wraparound glasses, right? Well, these went over your eyes like that, but they were a big fan shape that jutted out of the glasses part. Um, Professor Evans lit some elements on fire in the classroom for us to observe through the glasses, and we saw the spectral lines for these elements light up in the viewfinder of the glasses. Then we went outside, and we aimed them at the sky. It was cloudy that day because it was in Tacoma, Washington in the fall, but as I recall, there was some breaks in the clouds that we used to observe the sun's spectrum by aiming the spectrograph glasses up at it. It was an amazing device, and the image of all this has stuck with me because it's an incredible fact that elements emit light. You can know what elements exist because they appear on the spectrum. Unfortunately, I have no idea how those glasses are made or how they work, and I don't remember if Professor Evans ever told us what they're currently used for, but I'm very glad I got to learn a little bit more about what the hell spectroscopy is and talk about how it's been used to examine outer space. I want to give a heads up. Um, Today, or at least the day this podcast comes out, Monday, is my first day at my first full-time job with regular hours, so um, we're going to see where life stuff takes me and takes this podcasting project. Um, I already have some exciting ideas for upcoming podcasts. I'm hoping to do an episode with a friend of mine who's a physics PhD student studying how the universe has evolved since the Big Bang. (laughs) 
Hopefully I'll be able to interview Ruby about her work and how it relates to cool, sexy things like dark matter next week when she's in town for the total solar eclipse. Remember, uh, get your eclipse glasses from a public library or optometrists, or probably Amazon sells them. (laughs) Or you could set up a pinhole camera so you can view the eclipse if you're in North America. Listen back to episode 9 if you want a refresher on what exactly will be happening. Also, I hope some folks enjoyed seeing the Perseids last weekend. Let me know if you did. You can always send me an ask on the Tumblr or tweet at me at HD in the Void. I'm still interested in learning more about space probes, and I can get on that book I have from the library about the transit of Venus, which is a phenomenon I mentioned in the episode about planets. If you think there are some other cool things that I should research, let me know. Uh, And please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and rate it if you like it. I would also be delighted if you recommended this podcast to friends who like astronomy, science, science history, and soothing voices. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it ruffles my puffin. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to ruffle your own puffin too. Tune in on August 28th for the next episode, and check out my sources, music credits, the episode transcript, a timeline of all those people I just mentioned, and a vocab list at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD, signing off. <laughs>